Well, good morning, guys. Oh, man, we can do way better than that. This is like a family reunion moment, man. Good morning, guys. Hey, I'm so glad to see you. Like, I have just been smiling all morning giddy about this. Like, I've, I was fully expecting, like, just waves of, like, eight-foot tables and, like, all kinds of potluck after this whole thing to have a family reunion, and I was disappointed that, oh, yeah, coronavirus is still a thing. But um, for all of you guys that, uh, that man, I just miss, like, I just feel like uh, t- today really is a bit of a family, family reunion. Um, and then for those of you who I haven't met, uh, again, as Jeff said, Chad really is my name. That's not just an alias I go by. Uh, uh, my name is Chad Kinser, and um, to see you guys uh, that are new to this congregation added to the number of what's happening here is really encouraging to me. Um, it's crazy to think about the fact that three and a half years ago, I landed uh, moving from Austin back to uh, Oklahoma City, which is home for me, um, with the prospects of planting this congregation, and then just in the way things shifted, uh, landed that I'm leading the downtown congregation. But this has been uh, what you guys are doing here for me to actually get to see it. Uh, th- this is so many prayers have been prayed for a long time, prayers that far exceed uh, my time at Frontline. And uh, for you guys to be rooted in the heart of, of this part of our city, the West Oklahoma City metro area, Yukon, Mustang, Piedmont, um, man, it is, it is a profound thing. And so uh, to be here with you is a real privilege today. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, I want to pray before we open God's word together, and then, uh, and then we'll see how God would shape our time. Sound good? All right. Hey, even as we pray today, I want to just invite you to take a second, and uh, maybe this has been a busy morning for you. Um, Maybe getting to church wasn't the easiest thing, and so I just want to give you a second just to to breathe, and maybe voice your own prayer to God as we open his word today. Take a second and just ask God to speak to you today. Offer a prayer that Jesus would form you today. Offer a prayer that the Holy Spirit would awaken you today. Would you take a second and pray for me that what we talk about today would make sense? Father, we ask now in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, would you attend, would you attend these next moments that we share together around your word, would you attend these moments with power? We ask for power in preaching today. We ask for power in listening today. We ask for power to submit to Jesus today. We, we We ask God, we ask that this gathering Everything that's happened to now and everything that will happen until we are dismissed would be, would be met with your power, God. Thank you so much that you see us. Thank you so much that you, you meet with your people when we gather under the name of your son. And so we offer this prayer with confidence. We offer this prayer with hope. We offer this prayer really needy by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as Jeff prayed just moments ago, you know, it's interesting to step into a moment 
today and, and think about where, where the preaching of God fits. Uh, it certainly has a place. It certainly is appropriate among us, but also uh, what role does it play in the midst of kind of what we're experiencing as, as a culture? It's, it's an understatement. It's nothing provocative or uh, insightful for me to say, but this week uh, and the events that took place both at our state capital and the nation's capital and other capitals around the country um, once again was a reminder of just how divided we are as, as a nation, just, just how divided we are as a people. And it's also a reminder that whatever we're doing here today, whatever we're about to do around God's word today, um, as followers of Jesus, as, as disciples of what we confess to be a risen Lord, that our hope has to be anchored in something. I think we'd all say amen to this. Our hope has to be anchored in something much bigger than the reports of what's happening on Capitol Hill, right? That what stabilizes us has to be something greater than a legislative order or an executive uh, decree, right? Like our, our, our hope and our anchoring and our formation has to be around something much greater. And what's interesting is like we're also here experiencing all of this at the turn of a calendar year. And I don't know that there's ever been a turn of the calendar that's been more looked toward than, than this one. Like just can we please shed 2020? Can we purge that thing for all it's worth? And what's interesting is our pastors, we, as elders, we've been very hesitant to say what, what God is up to in these days. Frankly, because we don't know. <laughs> there's so much that's unprecedented. There's so much that's bizarre. There's so much that we don't have answers for. There's so much that we're still trying to figure out. And so we've been really hesitant to try to speak on behalf of God or to say somehow what we think is happening in these days. But as days go by, increasingly there are some things that we can begin to see, right? There are some things we begin to see. And one of them I would just call out the top end of what we're doing today is that our cultural idols... The things that we reach to for stability and identity and anchoring, our cultural idols have been exposed, and they haven't saved us. They've never saved us, and they aren't saving us now. Cultural idols like politics, idols like technology, health and wellness, a thriving economy. Like These are things that we go, hey, well, at least politics are going a certain way, or, or at least technology is anchoring me down and it's got answers that I don't have, or, or at, least, uh, at least I'm healthy and I'm well, or at least, hey, at least the economy's going in a way that's upward and to the right. These are a few of the things that we reach for all the time, and we've kept reaching for them, but we're not finding rest, and they're not saving us. And so we're in this really interesting moment where by the grace of God, what, 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 of, of all the things that he might be doing in these days, what, what might be clearest is that he's inviting us as his people to stop playing religious games, right? He's just inviting us to stop playing religious games and to cry out to him again because here's what's true, right? Like life hacks aren't going to work for this moment. Like short-circuiting and finding a quick fix is not going to work in this moment, both for you or for us as a culture. So don't just think culturally. Like, think for you individually. A life hack or a quick fix isn't going to work. In fact, a quick fix, if it appears to work, it really will only serve to make things worse because it'll distract you from the issue that'll still be there long after the fix ceases to, to offer something. Numbing out. And just saying, I'm going to bury my head in the sand and I'm just going to lift it back up again when all of this is over. Hey, numbing out isn't going to work. Like there's actually something 
more than, more than making jokes, like one of the saddest things I saw on social media this week, uh, a friend sent to me was like, we're not even hours removed from the stuff that happened at the nation's capital, and there's already memes about it. So on the one hand, there's outrage, there's people who are angry. On the other hand, just six hours removed from a saddest moment in our nation's history, like we're making jokes. So numbing out's not going to work. It's actually a moment for lament. Hey, here's what we need. Here's what, I'm, here's what I actually feel so like, weak to step in today because I just know that what, I, what you need is not a powerful sermon from me. I'm not a good enough preacher to give us what we need. We need power today, right? We need God. We need God. And I know that sounds big and it's like, yeah, that's a lot. Hey, we actually need him. We need an intervention from him. We need him to collide with us again. We need him to, to, like, to blow us back. We need him to interrupt us. We need him to bother us in some ways. We need to be unsettled and then resettled by God. What we need is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What we need is renewal and awakening. Like I say that in a town that like I grew up in, a high school that I graduated from. Like a community that I still pray for deeply. In this community where like Christianity, there's so many stores where you can buy Christian trinkets in this town. We need renewal. We need awakening. We need revival. Only God will do. Like only God will do. One of my favorite places to go and to visit is uh, is Colorado. And uh, it's a popular vacation spot for people who live in the plains of Oklahoma for good reason, right? It's amazing, like, what effect just being in the mountains can have on me. Like, just seeing a mountain is like, oh, my soul feels better, (laughs) you know? Just seeing a big rock form. But you know what's interesting? Like, when I go to Colorado, like, I take lots of pictures to bring home, and they're my new desktop for six months, you know? But you know who's not taking pictures? Locals. Like, they take pictures. Like, don't get me wrong. They're not like, I hate this state. The locals love Colorado. But they're not, like, nearly getting into wrecks like I am along the highway. Like, I'm taking pictures that make it unsafe for my family to travel, but they're not. And here's why. Because they see it all the time. It's around them all the time. They still love the leisure. They love the recreation. But because they're so familiar with the things that are happening all around them, the things that people are literally traveling far and wide to see, because they're so familiar with these things, they've, they've lost a bit of their majesty. They've lost a bit of their majesty. And, and so I mention that because I think that's something of what happens for you and I. We become like gospel locals. We, we become like gospel locals. So that you and I, what's actually true, regardless of how you feel today, regardless of what you're coming in today, what's actually true is that we're surrounded by the ocean of God's grace in Jesus. But maybe it's been a long time since you slowed down and were struck again. But your sins are forgiven. Like you're surrounded by the ocean, that's true. But maybe the ocean has ceased, ceased to affect you. Like we're surrounded by the mountains of God's love. But maybe it's been a while since you just took a moment to go, I can't believe that the Father would go to such great lengths to adopt someone like me and name me as his own. Like that mountain of his love is true, but maybe maybe it's been a while since you've been enamored by it. 
Maybe it's hard for you to remember the last time that you really hungered for the presence of God and that you were refreshed under his care. Like, you believe in Jesus. You're doing the thing. You're checking the boxes. But maybe it's been a while since you're like, I just need his presence and nothing else is going to do. Maybe it's been a while. So here's what I want to do in our time together today. I want to spend some time talking about cultivating spiritual hunger. I want to talk about what it is to delight in God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you're kind of peering in on the conversation of what people, Jesus people might be talking about, what, what, what I'm talking about in cultivating spiritual hunger, what I'm talking about in delighting in God is a formation of our lives at the level of the soul that brings us into an encounter with the living God. We're talking about soul-level formation that brings us into an encounter, a very real encounter, not something we're make-believing with the God of the Bible, the living God. And so for the rest of our time, uh, I want to shape this conversation around these three terms. The first is this, delighting in God, what are we talking about? Delighting in God, just kind of name, let's define that for a minute. What, What are we talking about? The second piece is, hey, let's talk about why we miss it. Because it's true in this room, no matter how proficient you are at following Jesus, very often, at least in my life, I go, oh, I'm after something, but I keep missing it, right? So where is the gap in our discipleship? That's kind of the second turn today. And the third is this. So where do we go from here? What do we do about that, right? Delight in God, why do we miss it, and where do we go? Let's talk about the first piece. And I want to begin with a question. I want to begin with a question. What do you crave? Like, like at the deep level of your desires, what are you after in life? Around the way that you approach your vocation, around the way that you navigate in your family life, around the reason that you pursue the leisure and the hobbies that you have, I'm trying to get down there because all of us are looking for something and we're trying to grab it a thousand different directions to find it. And I'm trying to ask, What is it that you crave? What do you want at the deepest level? It's an important question. If you're willing to try to ask yourself that question and answer, it's going to get you down to the core of who you are. It's going to get you down to the place of even answering the question, what is the meaning? What is the purpose you're placing on life? Because however you might answer that question, whatever it is you're trying to grab for is actually the the thing that's getting you out of bed in the morning, right? What's down there? What's down there? People have tried to speak to what's down there across all humans uh, for a long time. So 17th century Catholic philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal, he speaks to it this way, famous quote. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they might employ, they all tend to this end. And they will never take the least step, but to this object, all of them are chasing this happiness. And so he says this, this is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves, just trying to grab for happiness and escape. C.S. Lewis, famous author, writer, professor, a thousand other things, says it this way. He says, I find in myself, if He says, if I find in myself a desire which no other experience in this world can satisfy, and we all do, right? 
We all find ourselves in this, this, this desire inside of us where nothing seems to satisfy it. He says, then the most probable explanation, the reason for that is that I was made for a different world. I was made for something beyond this place. So he's speaking to that common longing inside of all humanity, that longing that you and I try to satisfy with things like vacations and accomplishments and art and film and sports and drugs and career and body image and a thousand other things I can't even name in this moment. We're trying to grab for something, but the longing remains. So the question is, what do you crave? Blaise Pascal would say, down there at the root level, it's something around the idea of happiness. Lewis is going to say, it's something beyond this world, but then Jesus is going to show up on the scene. Jesus shows up, and in the Gospel of John, the passage that was read moments ago, in John's narrative of the life of Jesus, he captures the arrival of Jesus in a really interesting way that sets the table for this conversation. Notice again in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 38. It says, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. I think Pastor Jeff spoke to that a couple of weeks ago, just what it is to behold Jesus, right? So notice what comes after this. It says, the two disciples, when they heard him say this, they went after Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus turned to those guys who started then following him, and he turned to them, and he said, what are you seeking? Jesus locks eyes with these two guys, and hey, listen, this is the living and resurrected Christ, so these aren't dead words, black ink on a white page, or words on a screen. This is the living Lord who even speaks these words into this room right now. He locks eyes with us, and he says, what do you want? What do you want? Hey, what are you after? What are you looking for? Now, here's why I bring this up today. This is how John introduces Jesus. Like if you're going through and you've got one of those red letter Bibles, which I happen to love, but it's all red letters if we're going to be real, right? But if you have one of those red letter Bibles, it's black ink all the way through verse 38. The first red letters that show up in John's gospel, Jesus shows up onto the scene, but the first time we hear from this one we've been looking for, the word made flesh dwelling among us, the first time he opens his mouth, the first words from his mouth are, what do you want? Think about that for a minute. Because I don't think that's the way that you and I imagine Jesus. Most of the way that we imagine Jesus coming from a space like suburban Oklahoma is we picture him giving us instruction. That when Jesus opens his mouth, surely he's going to give me a directive. Surely he's got some kind of instruction for me. Or he's telling me what not to do and what otherwise I should do. He's a moral policeman. But the first words from Jesus' mouth what do you want? Have you ever considered, have you ever considered that Jesus isn't primarily after getting you to believe something? Have you ever considered that the first, the foremost thing on the mind and the agenda of Jesus isn't even to get you to do something? Like that's not what he's after. Let this reframe who Jesus is. Instead, what he's after, he's after the core of who you are. He's after your heart. That's what he's after. Before getting you to believe something, before getting you to do something, he's after you. You. And so how are you going to answer that question today? How are you going to answer the question, what are you seeking? 
It's one thing for me to ask you the question at the beginning of the sermon. It's another thing for us to read what people have had to say about that. It's another thing entirely for Jesus himself to ask you that question. Think carefully how you're going to answer that question. Do you have an answer to that question that actually matters? Like, do you have an answer to that question, that would, something that would be able to hold you and to anchor you and to form you in all of life? Do you have an answer to that question? What are you seeking? What's beautiful about Scripture is, frankly, if I just asked myself that and gave myself no helps, I would go, I, I don't know what to say. But what's beautiful about Scripture is it testifies to itself, and there's places in the Psalms back in the Old Testament that give us some guidance on how we might answer the question. So Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, delight yourself in the Lord. This is a familiar passage. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now carefully notice what's being said here, and don't let your familiarity, even though it's difficult, don't let your familiarity steal with you from what's being said. Because too often when we, when we see this verse, we view it like a transaction. Well, if I delight myself in God, if I get busy doing, God's, uh, doing things God's way for a while, if I just admit he's right, then he'll give me what I want. If I delight myself in God, play by his rules, right, th- then he'll actually give me what I want. We, we view it like a transaction. But if I can just play by the rules of my cos- cosmic grandfather, he'll be benevolent and he'll give me the thing I want. So if I can play nice with God, he'll give me the promotion that I want. If I can play nice with God, he'll give me the family that I want. If I can play nice with God, then he'll give me the thing on the other side. But when you and I see the passage this way, we completely bypass the heart of the invitation. Here's what I mean. Delighting in God is, what we, is not what we need to do in order to get something else that you really want. Delighting in God is not a transaction. We delight in God. We receive the invitation of this verse, delight yourself in the Lord because he is, he is the desire of our hearts. So underneath everything else that you're reaching for to find fulfillment, what you're reaching for is God. You delight in God because he is the desire of your heart. This is the Christmas song. He's the desire of the nations. He's what's behind the false facades of everything else. And despite our heart's efforts to satisfy that desire with a thousand other things that keep leaving us with leaky buckets, he is the fountainhead of all desire and delight. And so let me just define here for a second, what are we talking about? When we say delight in God, cultivating spiritual desire, give me a short definition. Here's the best I can do. Delighting in God is when the character of God, who he is, The promises of God, what he says, the works of God, what he does, become so precious to you that they start to form your whole life. When the character of God, the promises of God, and the works of God become so precious and foundational, they start to form your whole life. That is delighting in God. So Psalm 1611, another verse. How might you answer the question, what do you seek? Notice what this psalmist says. He says, you make known to me the path of life. Pause there. We would all agree with that. In Bible Belt, Oklahoma, we go, yeah, uh, God is the one who makes sense of life. The scripture is a roadmap to life, right? We get that. 
But then notice where the psalmist goes next. Because that's true, because he makes known to me the path of life, he says, in your presence, with you, God, is the fullness of joy. He says, and at your right hand, he says, there are pleasures forevermore. Things just got weird on the back end of that sentence. He says, with God, in his presence, is the fullness of joy. Not the shadow of joy. Everything else is the shadow of joy. I've got four kids. They are a delight to me, but they're only shadows of the one who's the maker of life. You see it. In his presence is the fullness of joy, and at his right hand, literally flowing forevermore, are pleasures. So the psalmist is using language and feelings here that you and I just don't use. He's he's talking about desire, something that's down there. That for many of us, like, we might dream about, but we don't actually experience, right? And so let's just talk the first, the first thing, delight in God. Jesus asks you a question. Hey, what are you seeking? Jesus asks you a question. And the prayers of King David that we just read in Psalm 37 and Psalm 16 invite us to a formation and an experience of delight. Let's get to the second turn today. Hey, why do we miss this? Can, can you see now kind of naming it and kind of unfolding it? Hey, like, that's not where I live, right? So, so why not? Why do I miss this? I think it's on some level different for all of us, but there are a good bit of things in common with everyone in the room. So, so here's three quick things around why I think we miss delight in God. The first is this. Moral religion. We miss delight in God because of moral religion. Here's what I mean. I think one of the common reasons we don't even tend to think in the category of delight with our God is because we didn't know we could. (laughs) We didn't know that we could think this way. Many of us grew up, I grew up this way, with a view of God primarily as this cosmic sheriff just out to keep everybody in line, right? And so we primarily believe in God, well, because after all, it's the right thing to do. And I try to live the way that I live and behave the way that I behave because after all, it's the right thing to do. So we've reduced religion down to, biblical religion has been reduced to, especially in this part of the world, no right and do right. Think the right way and do the right thing. And that's the full of Christianity, we're told. But when it comes to the issue of desire and delight, it's hard to kind of have any concept of God. Because in the moral religious view of God, frankly, there's no room for desire and delight. This is no wonder why many of us have closet pleasures that we go to, things that we go and do that we would call guilty pleasures or things that we don't want anyone else to find out about us because we have to go outside of God to find pleasure and delight because with God, I have no concept for those things, so I've got to get outside of him if I'm going to have that level of experience. If we're going to explore desire and delight, we've got to go somewhere else. That's just simply not God's game, moral religion would tell you. The problem with moral religion is it's just not biblical. (laughs) The problem with moral religion is it's just not biblical. If this was the view that you and I should have of God, then someone should have told the writers of the Psalms. Because they were crazy about him. They would say, I'll do anything to just get more of him. 
So when you get to the Psalms, what we read in Psalm 37 and Psalm 16, they're not even thinking wrong in the categories. Is this thing sinful or not sinful? Is this action right or wrong? Is this behavior good or bad? They're not thinking in those categories at all. They're simply thinking along the category is what can I do to have more of this God? In his presence is the fullness of joy, and at his, at his right hand are pleasures forever. I'll do anything to have more of him. I need God. See it. They're not thinking in the category of right and wrong, good and bad. They're thinking in the category of experience and delight. And so uh, a couple of years ago, like I'm not a professional at this. I'm not like up here as an experienced like delight guy in God. I'm like a fellow cultivator, you know. But a couple of years ago, I tried to take this a bit serious. And around the season of Lent, I just decided to fast from social media so I just pulled off of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter for 40 days. You're like, you did that for 40 days? I tried the year before, it didn't work. So I was like, I'm going to try that again. And uh, that was a couple of years ago. And by God's grace, I, I haven't jumped back on. Like, there's just a level of like toxic air that you breathe around those kinds of things, and even anxiety to keep up with the Joneses around the whole conversation. And, I, and here's, I would just say, like, the whole issue of social media, this is not an issue of right or wrong. It's not sinful. I guess it could be sinful, but the, the issue is not, is it sinful or not? The issue for me was, I actually think this is getting in the way of my delight in God. I pulled back, right? And, and what's crazy is I would actually put this in the room. This is a side and free and extra. I actually think it would be a massively prophetic thing. There's like 200 people here today. It would be a massively prophetic thing if 200 Christians just said, you know what, I'm not going to play the vitriol game anymore. I'm just going to interact with people, not a computer screen or a keyboard. It would be a prophetic thing in our city, prophetic thing. Here's the second reason I think we miss delight in God, the anxiety of the season. So like, there's some of you hearing what I'm talking about even today, and you're going, hey, that sounds nice to delight in God and cultivate spiritual hunger, but I'm just trying to make it in these days. Like, I don't have time to engage my soul with the transcendent God. I'm just trying to figure out which way is up and, like, how to get to tomorrow. And on some level, I want to say I totally get that. But on another level, here's where I would challenge you, especially at the turn of a new year that seems to give us new beginnings. You and I don't have the kind of time to wait until all of, gets, all of this gets easier to pursue something with God. Like, the time is now to throw a flag in the ground and say, I want to cultivate something in these days of suffering that will actually stay with me long after these days are gone, right? So I'd say one of the reasons we miss delight in God is just we let the anxiety of this season feed our own anxiety spirals. And then the third reason the third reason I think we miss delight in God is what I'll call Turkish delights. Turkish delights. Any Chronicles of Narnia people in the room? Like four of you? <laughs> hey, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, you know what I'm pointing to. In the story, in the story, there's this pseudo delight. There's this pseudo pleasure that's offered by the witch to Edmund, one of the characters in the story, and it's offered to him with the whole idea of keeping him from his journey. And so here's the whole danger of Turkish delights. They give you enough, enough sense of the pleasure you're after 
to keep you away from the real thing. They give you just enough of the sense of what you're after that it totally distracts you and, and it cripples you from actually being able to experience the real thing. Here's the bottom line why I bring this up. You and I have feasted so much on the things of this world that claim to meet our needs and they claim to get down to that soul level desire. We've feasted so much on these things that now it's actually difficult for us to have a desire for the real thing, God himself. We've so sought after money. We've so sought after the picturesque lifestyle. We've so sought after the dream home. We've so sought after the, the, the desired image of a family to fill all these places down here that it's actually really difficult to just pursue the purity and simple devotion of Jesus because he becomes the add-on. He becomes the accessory to everything else to be well-rounded. Turkish delights, they keep us from delighting in God. So let's land the plane today. So what do we do about this? What do we do? Delighting in God, having all of who he is form our life, the reasons we miss it, what do we do? Jeremiah 6, 16, hang with me. We still together today? All right. Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, he says, stand by the roads and look. He says, ask for the ancient paths. Notice the language. Ask for the old ways that are tried and true. This is not a hack. This is not a, this is not a life hack or a quick fix. This is actually a tried and true way. He says, ask for the ancient paths where the way is good, and I want you to walk in it. And it's there that you're going to find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. So what do we do? Spiritual disciplines. Hey, track with this for a second. Spiritual disciplines. Reading your Bible. Praying regularly. Confessing your sin rehearsing the good news of the gospel, fasting. We could go on and on. There are ways, there are ways that God's people have always been formed, ways they've always been transformed. This is not us discovering a new trick, right? This is actually us going, as the scripture says, let's go back to the ancient paths. Let's go back to the ways that God's people have always been formed, people who have lived through years much worse than 2020, people who have lived through much worse political turmoil than Wednesday, people who have been formed by God in very turmoil moments, ancient paths, right? Ancient paths. This is a call, call back to what's tried and true. But notice the verse finishes in a really, a really troubling way. It says, the Lord calls his people to these things. But notice the response of Israel. They said to him, we will not walk in it. We will not walk in it. This is, the, this is the response, sadly, of Israel over and over again. A clear way forward is presented, and they respond, I don't, I don't want to go with you there. So um, if, if you're like me, I, I don't know about you, I, I actually grew up in a church background where like the quality of your spiritual life, like the, the vitality, in fact, the way people would talk about it, like the quality of your spiritual life was determined by how many times you had your quiet time in the last week. 
How many times did you have your devotion time? How many times did you read the Bible in the last week? And, and I want you to say, hey, when I talk about spiritual disciplines, that's actually not what I'm talking about. This is not like a devotional honor shame moment. But the reason that the Bible calls things like reading and prayer and fasting, the reason it calls them disciplines is because you and I have been so formed by the world that we need to be reformed by something else, right? We've got to actually got to be reformed because the ways of the world have given us patterns away from God. But the point of the disciplines, and some of you here are the spiritual disciplines, and you're like, oh, not this again. But hear this. This is different, I think, than from what many of us grew up with. The point of the spiritual disciplines, the point of the ancient paths, is not the discipline itself. So many of us grew up in an environment where it's just like, yeah, I read my Bible today. Yep, I prayed today. Yeah, I confessed my sins today. Yeah, I, you just have this checklist. The point of the disciplines is not discipline itself or the disciplines themselves. The point of the disciplines is to get you to delight. It's to get you to God. So I'll explain it this way. Um, it's like date night with my wife. Hey, the point of date night isn't that we went on a date right? So I don't go through the trouble of planning and finding a babysitter. You actually do those things, right? So let's be honest. Uh, but yeah, I'm like, I'm awesome, guys. No, like, we don't go through the planning. She doesn't go through the, getting a sitter, setting a reservation. We don't, we don't go through all the trouble of all that stuff to show up at the dinner table and go, we did it, Right? The point of the date is not the date. The point of arranging all the stuff and going through the disciplines of getting to the dinner table is so that we can actually get to a spot where we can cultivate delight in something deeper. The point of the disciplines is not the disciplines. The point of the disciplines is to cultivate delight and hunger for God with daily pathways that set you in front of Him. Hey, listen, without regular discipline in your life, your flesh is way too crafty to wiggle away from God. That's exactly what happens. You just drift. I just drift. God's not trying to be mean to you by giving you a regular and weekly reading assignment. That's not what's happening. He's putting something in front of you because he actually wants you to engage with a living and active word that can form your heart in areas that the world just will never get to. And so I don't have time today to actually unpack all the practical instruction around how should you read your Bible or pray or the rest. Um, it'd be great for you to talk about those in your groups this week. It'd be great for you to think about, if you want really help in, some, in, in those ways, your, your pastors and, and leaders can set up time with you. But I want to close like this. I, I don't know where you are today, but here's my hope. By the help of the Holy Spirit, what I've asked God for today by the hope of the Holy Spirit, that he would actually bring us to a place of holy discontent. That we'd actually be bothered with where we are and where we're not, <laughs> but a desire to actually go somewhere, right? Here's what's crazy. The whole message of the good news of Jesus. So if you're new today and you're like, what is the gospel? Here it is. That God has sent his son to tear down any and every wall that would ever stand in the way of us encountering him as father on the level of delight. That's the good news of Jesus. 
because there's all kinds of walls that get built up, the good news is he blows them all down to say, I don't want you to have to try to figure things out. I want you to encounter me at the level of delight, at the level of hunger, at the level of formation. The Christian message is not about you and I making New Year's promises to God. The Christian message is about you and I again receiving the promises that he already makes to us. It's not about you and I going to find passion for God somewhere else. The Christian message is about the the passion of Jesus being offered to you where he died and he stood in your place. This is not a message that you have to go get a new heart and change your desires. This is a message where he actually makes your hearts new and gives you different desires as you're swallowed up by his heart. And so this is a moment... This is a moment where you and I are being invited to a fresh encounter with those words from John's gospel, the first words of Jesus. Hey, what are you seeking? What do you want? What are you after? What are you looking for? 